Hello, everybody, and welcome to this special episode of the Drum Network podcast, tying into our wider Building Brilliant Brands deep dive. Over the course of the past week on the drum, we've been examining brands from Discord through Samsung, some of the most interesting and innovative brands of the past couple of years. Now, it doesn't matter whether they're a challenger brand or whether they're a legacy brand that's been in the market for years. What matters is that they are pushing the boundaries of what is possible in terms of growth, marketing, and catering to their audiences. Now to discuss that absolutely vital topic of how you go about turning your own brand into a brilliant and fast growing one, I'm joined by four fantastic guests who I'm gonna ask to introduce themselves now. So I'm Daniel, I'm the SEO lead uh, based out of London at Impression. Um, Impression pretty much work across loads of different digital channels uh, with global brands, but we have offices in Nottingham, in the East Midlands and down here in London. Nice, fantastic. And Mel, same question. Hi, I'm Mel Henson. I'm head of creative at Optimize On. Uh, we're a digital agency specialising in marketplaces like Amazon and eBay, and we we help brands um, really just protect them, their reputations on those marketplaces. Nice, fantastic. And Amanda. Hi, I'm Amanda Glasgow. I'm the head of experience for AppNovation and Mir. Um, AppNovation is a company that we pride ourselves in creating um, standout digital experiences, collaborating with brands to understand their individual challenges and goals. Um, we really like to focus on um, clients, customers, effectively combining empathy and real world insight um, so that our solutions are really derived in truth and meaning. Nice, fantastic. And then last but not least, Marcus. Uh, thank you. I'm Marcus. I'm co-founder of Tommy. I've been in digital for over 20 years, which in dog years means I'm probably dead. My agency <laughs> work with people like Netflix, you know, and uh, that speed of innovation that most companies can't match for businesses. So it's a fascinating place. I'm a content obsessive. So that's what we're <laughs> talking about today. Nice, fantastic. And for those of you who don't know, I'm Chris Sutcliffe. I'm Senior Reporter for Tech at The Drum. And I'm delighted to have you all here because now we can get a really holistic look about how you actually build a better brand, all the challenges and opportunities that come with trying to do that rapidly, successfully, and ultimately we're trying to decide here what best practices when you're rapidly growing a brand. So Mel, in your introduction, you mentioned the fact that you almost part of your role is to encourage and to advise people to do this successfully. So the first question I'd like to ask you is, what is best practice? Is there best practice for rapidly growing a brand? And is it possible to do it without sacrificing stability in the long run? Yeah, I, I think you have to just go back to basics. And um, at the heart of the brand, you should have some really authentic values. Um, and and then can really believe in that voice. So keep it consistent. and. Every, at every touch point for the consumer, make sure that you're giving them the same emotional experience, um, whether it's somewhere where they're shopping or, or whether it's in, in uh, offline and social media. But if you have a, a set of brand values, really live them. I mean, the number of times I, I see, see some really great brand values and they talk about being human and approachable and and then you have some very cold, very official sounding text somewhere and, and it's a real missed opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose what's interesting about this particular deep dive is when we talk about rapidly growing brands, we don't necessarily mean the ones that have just sprung up and so can develop their values on the fly. In a lot of cases, what we're talking about is the brands who have been around for a long time, but are still succeeding and are still building upon those kind of core values that we've had at the start. So Daniel, then how do you actually iterate on those core values and continue to drive growth, even if you have been around in the market for a while? 
Yeah, from my point of view, specifically for my channel, it's getting that right balance between acquisition of established demand while at the same time actually creating it. I think creating demand is something that's kind of gone by the wayside, especially with kind of the ability, the fact that we can like analyze all this data. That's kind of more for like acquisition. I think brands that kind of do kind of grow really well, really rapidly are able to kind of just get people like looking at their brand, getting them kind of interacting with it. And to be honest, in the long run, having that demand for a brand is a better insurance in terms mm. of customer interest, because especially if we look at like what happened over the pandemic, like things that people usually were interested kind of got flipped on their heads. And so sort of from my point of view as a digital marketer, like all the data we had before all of a sudden just became quite irrelevant and we had to work like quite reactively. So having that kind of brand demand is like really good insurance. It's really hard to get and really hard to grow, but kind of like lucrative in the long run yeah certainly and actually something you said there about kind of interaction with the brand uh really leapt out there and i wondered marcus as a sort of content perspective how do you actually get people interacting with those rapidly growing brands um well i think in in a number of ways i think you know to build about building those rapidly growing brands i think the three things we always think about is one is time so you've got to be honest about capacity for human attention which has diminished so much so we're we're always really super focused on that with all the content we create we definitely sort of touching on a few of mel's points set up with distinction in mind you've got to fight sameness and stand out in a category um if you want people to start engaging with you and i know it's kind of obvious but it's obsessing about that you know that distinctiveness that impacts the memorability of your brand to stand out and the third thing we always do is you know setting about thinking about the category conventions when developing our comms so think about you know how you can compete in the category for opportunities to grow find you know territories that are fresh and new and somehow you know even if you're reframing the same thing and do it in an interesting way you know start different end up somewhere new because same old equals the same old thing right and that's how you're going to stand out and then you know that's how people will engage with you and, mm. and i'll probably talk about this a bit later about engaging with people's brains there's a difference in meaning about what do you mean by engagement because it has different meanings not just brands commenting on your social feeds i think no, that's a true different term yeah, absolutely. In fact, there is a key distinction there that we need to make between that kind of like soft engagement and the really sort of like in-depth ones that actually develop some of those longer term relationships. Yeah, I have a book. I have a book. So I, to, I, I have a book that I um, my creative director part bangs me over the head with them and all our team. It's called Smile in the Mind. And that's about content that engages that you have to bring something to when you see it. It's kind of like classic advertising, right? But it's engaging people. And that's how you're engaging people in, 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 in a truest sense. I think it's important. See, I thought you were taking the opportunity to use the first question to plug your own book there. So I'm <laughs> no. so, so impressed by the gumption. And I don't have the capability for that. <laughs> and Amanda, so many of the, the rapidly growing brands that we're talking about in this deep dive are those that are more enabled by tech. How much of rapid growth in 2022 is going to be enabled by having a strong tech stack, a strong understanding of where your audiences live on terms of social platforms? How much of that is kind of underpinning the rapidly growing brands that you've seen? Um, I think tech's really important. And I think as we're moving into more composable tech, you know, and, and moving away from kind of big monolithic things, it's understanding that we can create those kind of um, seamless experiences across channel. And as you say, being where the audience live. And I think to touch on what Mel said, it's really about, um, it's about mo emotional connecting, you know, connecting uh, to your users emotionally um, and being, being closer to them. And I think one thing with the pandemic is, brands going D to C, it actually gives them the opportunity to have that kind of more personalised touch and be closer to their end users um, and, and give a more personalised feel to the experience. 
Yeah, absolutely. And the fact that personalization is something that I know was, um, you know, we, we use personalization. In fact, I think we retired it as a buzzword on the drum a couple of years ago, but it feels like it's been springing up now, not as a buzzword, but as a viable tactic kind of enabled by tech. Something that, Amanda, I'm going to stick with you because one of the things that I wanted to really get in at the start of this podcast is which brands do our guests admire? Which do they think are kind of examples of the brands that are really doing rapid growth well? So Amanda, who do you think is doing rapid growth really well at the moment? Um, there's some big ones and there's some little ones. I mean, I think the things that we saw um, through the pandemic, think about things like food delivery services. So to, to name one, you know, Deliveroo became a fourth kind of emergency service for a lot of people. Um, you know, so we may see a kind of drop off <laughs> after, you know, the pandemic is cleared, um, but it's become such a part of, you know, people's day to day and part of their furniture. Um, you know, Amazon has obviously been delivering to every, everyone, but Etsy, on the other hand, yeah. you know, have become the kind of, you know, competition to Amazon, you know, for the people that, you know, Amazon isn't universally liked and, you know, some people use it all the time and others loathe it. But, you know, Etsy, having turned itself into a multi-billion dollar business by focusing on crafts and vintage and human side of e-commerce, you know, it's appealing to people who won't buy into that mass market. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of the kind of the e-commerce strategies that we've seen from, you know, people outside the traditional marketing industry, some of the publishers as well, who've really doubled down on that, have been on that kind of like that craft circuit who really took advantage of this growth in the the need for e-commerce, actually, I suppose. And Mel, who do you think is doing rapid growth really, really well? And what is it about their marketing strategy that you admire? I think what I find quite interesting is the, the new sectors that are coming out. Um, so um, I'm thinking of vegan meats mm. um, and um, and CBD oils. And the reason why I think they're, they're so interesting is because they're all brand new brands because it's sort of something that hasn't been around before. But it's so important that they are trusted because you've got this strain, say that you know, the, the meatless meats, You've you've got to convince consumers that a they're going to be delicious and b they're not going to poison you. <laughs> um, so trust is so important, and trust has always been at the heart of what makes a really good brand. And the other thing is that uh, that is um, really core to a great brand is that they fulfil a real need. And those are two, especially the meatless meats. You know, so many people wanting to eat more healthily or or um, eat vegan. Um, and then the CBD oil, you know, because it helps relieve stress and anxiety and all of that. And that's quite interesting because you can't say that in the advertising. So you have to find other ways to build trust. So um, the Canaray is doing that amazingly um, by having Claudia Winkleman, who comes along and says nothing. But um, that, that's probably the fastest growing brand in the CBD market. That's actually one of those um, pieces of marketing that I remember specifically almost because they say nothing because it's such of a, a sort of tone setter. Uh, yes. Yeah, that's a really good example. And then, Daniel, who do you think is doing rapid growth really, really well? It doesn't have to be in any particular sector. It could just be an individual company almost. Um, I've got a few, but they're kind of biased to my interest as well and what I've kind of consumed over the last year. And to, to kind of latch that onto Mel's point, um, Beyond Meat, um, they've done a lot of strategic partnerships with brands such as McDonald's, which means vegan alternatives are kind of more accessible. And I think that's going to be a key trend for a growth in a lot of brands is that accessibility. And also they have this kind of thing that um, a lot of companies are doing where they're now kind of looking to the future and creating almost this kind of like utopian vision. Like one of their 
mission statements is to feed a better future. Now, this might come across in the future when, you know, companies get accused of greenwashing and, you know, they, they present this future, but they actually aren't really doing that much for it. So I think that's going to be something that's going to probably come up, up come up again as these brands kind of build this narrative that they're, they are part of the future. They are part of where we want to be. Um, and I think another one that's that's an, a kind of big, uh, but also has some downsides is gorillas. Um, I think their branding and their aesthetic and their focus on convenience. Now there's a lot of competition in that market as they kind of getting a lot of money pumped into them in order to, I mean, that kind of Amazon strategy, you know, they're trying to monopolize that, that kind of delivery service type thing. You know, we might see all these brands kind of die off, not probably this year, but you know, someone, someone's got to win essentially. All this money can't be for the sake of nothing. Yeah. Um, and I think another thing that was mentioned before about kind of creating these digital experiences, um, a Whoop, which is wearable tech, um, it has like this kind of membership experience. So it's almost like a lot of what these fitness brands are trying to do is trying to take that kind of PT or gym experience and turn that digitally. And especially like, if, I think they always had this envision this, but kind of the pandemic kind of sped this up. So a lot of them are kind of do this. And I think a lot of brands will be looking at how they can take their kind of brand and turn that into a digital experience, especially with, you know, all this talk of metaverse and the like. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, the, the Brits are obviously as of the time of this recording there this evening, and they've just done a big metaverse expansion as well. So yeah, yeah, exactly that kind of digital expansion is going to be fascinating to keep an eye on. Uh, Marcus, there's so much there we could talk about from Daniel Santa, including this idea that, you know, with gorillas, they're kind of rapidly exploding on the bit. They're betting effectively that they can be the big winners here. But mm. what are some of the brands that you think are doing this really, really well at the moment sustainably? And sort of what do you admire about their marketing strategy? Well, there's a couple of brands alike, and I, I, I go back to Daniel's points about brands he's consumed. So I, the two brands I'm going to give an example of, one I've consumed and one I haven't, so I'll let you mm. guess which one. Okay. Liquid Death first, which is the Evian Antichrist, right? And it's uh, it's all in intense, in-your-face water brand. And if you haven't seen it, they they promise to murder your thirst. I mean, I think it's brilliant. <laughs> I forgot it's about that. Yeah, it's a startling different way to think about a category and it's really refreshing. So if you think about a legacy category almost, it's like, it's really, I, I love it. They've got this death metal aesthetic and they're taking the rules from a different category, which I always admire and telling these new and interesting stories and buckle up if you land on the holding page or the Instagram page because the tone of voice is acidic and really great. <laughs> and it, it's really, really distinct. It's that distinctiveness that we keep talking about. Like, it looks like it's underpinned by a great social strategy, which I, which I love. The second one, we, we were talking about salt the other day, and uh, you can't but admire the audacity of Mr. Salt Bay, right? And um, oh, God, the, main, yeah. the main man has had a great start with the hashtag Salt Bay, but it's the shamelessly way he managed their mystique on social, fueling sort of the chat around the ridiculous prices of menu. And it's shameless, audacious, extreme, uncompromising. And we talk about this, like salt is one of the most readily available kitchen items, but they somehow managed to fetishize it in through performance and some kind of ultimate status symbol. And I mean, the gold leaf helps too, right? But uh, yeah, <laughs> It's kind of those different points. And, uh, you know, even the website, if you go to the website, it's got a feast button instead of a reservation button and things like that. Just the way they think about that brand and they're engaging. I kind of, I kind of love all of that. Yeah, the kind of the pepper army-ization of, of a lot of the marketing messages going kind of extreme, but around this sort of very, very basic product. Yeah. So absolutely. I want to throw that actually open to the rest of the guests. So which of those that Marcus mentioned do you think he has tried and which do you think he hasn't? Daniel, I'm going to have to throw it to you, mate. <laughs> uh, <laughs> It, it's tricky. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna say the first one. You haven't you haven't tried. So you haven't tried the water. 
It's the salt bay. I haven't, I haven't uh, been salt. Yeah, kind of that. Yeah, it's very exclusive at the moment. To be fair. So uh, moving on from that, thank you so much for sharing those examples. I think they've all really, really good examples of what is underpinning rapid growth at some of those brands, even though you know some of them are in the kind of very nascent stages and others are further along that consumer journey. Um, but something that I know our, one of our senior editors, Jen Fall, wanted to ask is, as we're emerging from this pandemic and we're faced with a cost of living crisis, I think that's been highlighted all the more over the past couple of days. Uh, Jack Monroe's done some fantastic work around this. She's just launched her own kind of clothing brand off the back of it, in fact. Um, all the money goes to the Trust of Trust, so that's obviously very beneficial for those guys as well. But what do you, uh, some of the challenges do you think that brands are going to face in the year ahead that could potentially inhibit growth? And what, how are your clients asking you to sort of grapple with that at the moment? Um, I don't mind going first on this one. Uh, it kind of goes back to some of the brands I mentioned, because uh, I think at the moment, everyone's kind of look to see how their brands can solve a problem. Um, and a lot of this that we're seeing at the moment is this kind of idea about convenience. Mm. And it's very competitive. And just because of the economy as well, we're seeing bottlenecks in shipping, um, you know, things like the lingering semiconductor shortages, you know, things like that. And just generally like brands being quite scared of market disruptions. Um, so we're actually, I think the challenges is that a lot of brands is going to face is how to be reactive to change. Um, and a lot of demand we're kind of seeing from clients and stuff is being able to quantify performance and opportunity in real time um, and actually coming up with sustainable actions from that. And I think that's all going to come down to um, what a brand's data intelligence is like and, you know, how, how easy it is to access that data and how kind of liquid, you know, in terms of um, actions you and kind of resource you have to be able to kind of sustain that change, essentially. Okay, so who who wants to pick up on that? Because the the the, the key point there about being able to be very flexible and actually to have the kind of real time data insight is something that has been mooted, has been sort of something that a lot of brands have relied upon in the past, but seems more uh, important now than ever before. So, to what extent then do we think that that is going to be the solution to a lot of brand woes over the next couple of years? I suppose I, I mean I'll go I'll go next. I think it's really really interesting point about that market disruption performance because it leads into one of the things I think is a content marketing part and the creativity about the performance of your content that matches what Daniel's talking about there and you know I mean if lo with loyalty being out the window and budgets being slashed and everything under pressure um, you know you, you, you sort of realise and, and me as a big advocate by the way of investing in content and if you're not investing in your content and thinking about where are these amazing ideas and differentiation and compelling creative and craft coming from then how are you going to cut through as a brand and with all those challenges that you're facing right now? And, you know, again, I keep talking about there's rarely anything new in the category, hence the, the liquid death example of what, how you do stand out. So if you're under that pressure and performance is under pressure and things are changing, you know, we're putting quick content out there maybe to match that, and that's not necessarily the right thing to do. There's a darker side that I've been thinking of based on this question, mm. which is around the sort of, uh, you know, we all love a quote, right? So if you invent the... You invent the ship, you invent the shipwreck, which is, you know, we're feeding this bottomless pit of average content at the moment because we are responding quite quickly and we're, we're, we're working with, you know, media agencies to try and respond. But the average content is not leaving people satisfied. I don't think it's engaging people. And I think marketeers have a duty to think about how we're exercising the brain of the consumers and engaging, which we're talking a bit about earlier, mm. how we are responding during these times with really well thought out content that is memorable, that has more impact for your brands. We've done all the reading, right? 
on craft and creativity and the impact of building brand and you know versus short-term goals and then daniel will probably tell you how you know the pressure that you put under the short-term goals right left right and center i dare say so i think it's you know it's a really interesting time for content marketing and what we're doing as we move forward this year I think I just want to follow up on that as well, just in terms of the content side of things, because I think uh, brands have been quite sheepish about kind of owning their conversation. You know, there's probably plenty of stuff that people have conversations around around a brand Mm. Um, and publishers just won't have brands and publishers just won't have content on that just because, you know, they think, well, you know, it's a tricky subject. But if you don't own that conversation, then someone else will. Uh, And, you know, depending on how users consume and want to get to that content, you know, there'll, there'll be something for that because as, as you say, like, you know, there's so much content that's being pumped out at the moment and a lot of it will be low quality. So it's brand's chance to kind of come in there, own that conversation and actually give something to the user that, and the customer that, you know, they'll, they'll want to consume. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mel, I know that kind of Optimizon's been across a number of clients in a number of different verticals and sectors. To what extent mm. then do you think that they are almost aware that there is this potential cost of living bottleneck that's coming down and sort of how are you advising them to to think about that in terms of their marketing? Oh, huge. I mean, it, like I remember last year we were talking about the cost of uh, um, containers going up from 2000 to 10,000 and 16,000. And sometimes they just left stock in China because it was they couldn't afford to ship it over. And that's all been passed on. Um, and um, I mean, for us, a key thing on Amazon is winning the buy box, um, which is all price led. And, and that's caused a lot of technical problems for a lot of our clients selling on Amazon. But I, I think where we're going now, the whole um, sort of what, what's really changing, whereas before, um, two years ago, clients were coming to us because they wanted to go on Amazon. And there were two reasons why they came. One was because they saw their resellers have taken a bigger um, slice of the profits. Um, and they thought, well, no, we should be selling on Amazon and getting that money. The other is they saw those resellers presenting them in a way that didn't reflect the brand the way it should be, and they wanted to protect the brand. Um, what's happening now is they want that on Amazon, but they also want it on the plethora of marketplaces that are springing up to be on eBay, um, Wayfair, Mano Mano, Wish, Next, Zalando. There are so many marketplaces um, and they, it, it, it's really about making sure that it stays consistent across all of them. And that requires having, um, and this is where data comes in, having a single source of truth so that it, when it, it gets syndicated across into different marketplaces in the formats that they all want it, uh, it, it, it still resonates in the same way. And I think that's where they can protect the price as well is because, We've seen throughout history, people pay a higher price for brands because they trust it. Mm. And if the brand is presented in a way that people can trust, they will beat the the Chinese copycats, the fakes, the counterfeits that are abound. In, in, it's a bit of a wild west out there on marketplaces. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I love this idea that as well, that kind of the ultimately what drives a really great brand growth story is that kind of trust and that relationship they have with with consumers. Uh, Amanda, from Amnovation's point of view then, I suppose the same question then, what are some of those kind of those bottlenecks that you're seeing and how are you advising your clients to, to think about those? Okay, so one thing that's kind of springs to mind is we've been living in this very much 
hybrid world, mm. right? Um, some people are keen to get back to the office, some in physical retail stores, uh, you know, or just meet friends socially. Yeah. But others are a bit more cautious about this and have different expectations, you know, um, about working environments. And for brands, this is going to be an investment conundrum. Mm. Um you know, do they go all out on digital? You know, we've been living in this lockdown digital world for, for two years. Uh, or is it time to double down on physical outlets and, and you know, and and bring back normality? You know, and it's understanding what that hybrid future is going to be. Um, in the short term, that might hamper their growth, you know, if they're trying to work out the balance of where to do the investment. But I think longer term, it has an opportunity for companies. Um, where they're truly able to grasp the, you know, the omnichannel model, you know, and we start to have that kind of digital physical thing again, perhaps. Yeah, um, it's so. been a bit of an acid test, I suppose, <laughs> in terms of that. But do you see them that many brands are kind of heading down that path of doing hybrid really, really well in terms of optimizing their growth through recognizing the value of these different channels? Mm, it's, it's a good question. I think I think this is it's more more to come. I think we've seen such a surge in uh, in digital and the D to C. Mm. Um, I, I think it's it's waiting to see what happens in in the physical world. But I think it, it's something that you know brands are going to have to seriously consider. Yeah, absolutely. Something else that our senior editor Genful wanted to ask about is Unilever has faced criticism recently for its focus on brand purpose, uh, and I think she cited here the major investor saying its obsession with purpose is inhibiting growth. So we touched upon this very briefly at the start, but what is the panel's view on the purpose debate, and to what extent then do we think it can help or hinder growth? I don't know who wants to say that first because obviously purpose is such a huge topic, <laughs> and you're all coming at it from a very different point of view, I suppose. Mel? Yeah, I, 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 this is quite a bugbear for me, so I'm, I'm, I've got quite a lot to say on this one. <laughs> yes, um, nice. I, I was initially so sceptical of all this brands as a purpose, and um, I saw um, I was at Steve Harrison, who was the former creative director uh, at Wonderman, speak at a conference, and his view was that um, it, it's just a metropolitan elite thinking, getting all very cultural and being a bit left-leaning and not really understanding what people really want. And he cited um, a, a study by Tenzer and Murray which said that when you ask people what sort of do they want from brands, only one in 10 said that social purpose was something that would make them buy. So I was very much on that side because I've, I'm very old school. I believe that um, advertising is there for a purpose and that's to a commercial purpose to sell the products. However, I have got converted because um, Unilever um, have turned around and they say that there are 28 brands that are sustainable or have a su sustainable living purpose have um, achieved 69% growth. Mm. And they they are contribute to, to the 75% of all of the, the growth across the Unilever brands. So we're talking about things like Dove having a goal to um, instill, uh, raise self-esteem and um, give good body confidence to the next generation, which is a fantastically laudable goal. Um, and and I, you know, when I think sixty nine percent growth, you just can't argue with that. But why why I do think it works um, is it. I don't think you could just take a brand that was poor quality. Um, that didn't have a, a solve a real problem for real people and stick a, um, a label on it saying that it, we're going to help. That's yeah. all that social cause. I think you you still have to have 
really good quality products that really do the job. And then this is what comes around it. This is what consumers need now to be able to have trust in that brand. So it's almost purpose driven by the products rather than just kind of a, a veneer of, uh, I suppose, social yes, obligations I, being based on something. Exactly. And I think that it needs to be relevant social purpose as well. I mean, the, the raising body confidence is so relevant to the Dove brand. Um, it probably wouldn't be so relevant if they were to that brand was to have a purpose around, um, you know, stopping fires in the Amazon, you know, yeah. and that sort of thing. Yeah, I was just, I was just say, I think to Mel's point, it depends on the context, right? Should, should a mayonnaise brand lecture us on the, the virtues of sustainability? I'm not sure they always should. But, um, you know, there's nothing wrong with purpose being we're going to serve the best burger in the world or we're going to make someone smile every day. You know, each one core to what your brand is about. TikTok, TikTok's purpose is to inspire creativity and to bring a bit of joy, which we're all craving. And millions of people are buying into that every day. Right. But I think probably the point the, the Unilever investors was so much of what we see with the purpose is pretty, you know, it's as shallow as it is puddle deep. Right. And signaling at best. And those promises, they're just they, if you look behind, they lack real substance. And, um, you know, I'm not going to call out brands, but hey, let's do one like Tia Maria, for example. They love to celebrate uniqueness and tell us we're all one of a kind. Oh, actually, just like their newest Tia Maria creamy liqueur, you know, it's like, okay. And these adverts that are laden with sort of Gen Z cliches, and you know, they tick every box in a diversity scale. But what when you what lays beneath it when you unpick it is probably not a lot, and you're just being forced to product message, really. I think it's a real tenuous link. But on the flip of that, I mean, you know, purpose plays an important role within some businesses we work with football clubs like Tottenham Hotspur and it, you know their, their commitment to a more equal world is total and it's baked in for for the business they have a you know a hugely ambitious sustainability agenda for example reducing single-use plastic footprint inside the stadium and throughout their supply chain and then more inspiring is how they're using their platform to make a difference and invite partners to make a real impact in people's lives you know football Football's always had that grassroots programs and purpose beyond the match day, but now they can do lots of things, you know, to Mel's point about inspiring future generations, and they can inspire us in many different ways from championing female role models through the, the women's football team or helping stand up against racism and tackle issues that they've got mass reach for. So it's quite great that they have that baked into the brand and it, and it does work. So there's the flip of both of those that I kind of admire and kind of despise, I suppose, about what purpose stands for in places. Yeah, and I think a lot of the examples you've you've raised there are those that are some of the most visible ones. You know, when we had kick racism out of football, for instance, that was both laudable and I suppose it was beneficial from a commercial point of view as well because it attracted brands who wanted to be aligned with that, and it also allowed kind of new and more representative audiences to feel like they were being catered to as well. The sake of sport, you know, just to touch on Daniel Daniel's point, you know, I've, I've looked a lot at the women's football team, and it does, you know, young women don't exercise when they they reach puberty and things. There's, a, there's so many positive impacts that that sports and football and things can do for much much aligned for all the grossness of the money and everything the investments that go into it um, and, and the double standards left right and center it has a mass impact with many people which i think which i think is great and we do so daniel then i was talking i was talking earlier with a couple of my colleagues at the drum and we were talking about you know younger audiences and whether the uh, the aphorism that they are more able to spot inauthenticity across digital channels is something that you know holds true. So, is that when we talk about purpose, is that something that we is kind of a generational thing, or are we sort of now seeing that people are just more habituated to consuming kind of like purpose driven content around their favorite brands? 
Um, I think it's a difficult one. I think just in terms of like uni, because I've actually worked with uni for um, quite a bit in the past, I think that their unique problem is obviously they have acquired lots and lots of brands and there's almost a way they're trying to kind of give each one of those brands their own voice, but it kind of creates like a conflicting purpose. Um, and I think it just kind of goes back to the, the fact you need to get that right balance between acquisition of demand and actually um, creating it. But in terms of generational thing, it does seem like, you know, the more people as they shift away from the likes of Instagram to TikTok, they are looking for that authenticity. And it does seem to be a lot of Generation Z. And I think it all comes about with how you came about kind of consuming. Like I think, mm. you know, the the you know the people that, you know, everyone's kind of left Facebook and the only people that are really on there are like our grandparents is because, you know, the way they kind of saw the internet was, you know, they it was kind of like this grand thing. It was supposed to create all this like opportunity and it was supposed to be diverse in its inception what like kind of the generation afterwards kind of discovered was actually it, there's lots of complications with that. Um, and we did, we kind of got education on that later on. And now generation Z from the offset are, are given warnings about the platforms, about, you know, the kind of content you consume to kind of be wary about that, especially post like, you know, the things about fake news, et cetera. So they are actually more educated than we are in this. So they are able to kind of spot that authenticity and are a lot more critical as well, mm. which I think is is kind of a good thing. Yeah, certainly. Amanda, you were sort of nodding along to that at that point about um, younger audiences being sort of, I suppose, more savvy. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, they are looking for brands with purpose and speaking to some of my friends who have young teens, you know, and understanding, you know, what brands that they look for and where do they go. And I think um, most recent discovery for me was apps like a billion. You, you may know it, but, you know, vital source for people looking for purposeful brands, you know, ties in a nice community aspect of, of, of every action that people take and counting and showing collective impacts, you know, alongside in, individual impacts. And I think this is what kind of younger generation are you know are really focusing on you know being put in touch with those brands and then I think you know there is a job of content which will delight you Marcus of how you reach out to those those people but I think um yeah definitely um much more aware um and I think there's there's some brilliant brands that are doing nice stuff with sustainability um not just in in their content I think one thing that I'd, uh, organic basics I don't know if anyone's heard of that sustainable clothing brand um what I really like about them is they practice what they preach even their, their technology so when you talk about technology stack they have a low carbon site um that during peak times just reduces down to simplicity, you know, so page weight, switch to an outline drawing uh, for your product grid. And there's always that option to do it so that, you know, you actually feel you're buying a sustainable brand as a sustainable experience. And I think the more that we see that in technology, it's certainly something that some of our clients are asking for, you know, can we be a bit more carbon neutral within our actual tech stack as well? Yeah, thank you for flagging that example. That's a really, really good, I suppose, um, balance between actually being serving the customer effectively and actually being purpose-driven as well. And I think that's fantastic. And so I want to keep in as much of this as we can, so I want to move along rapidly to our final question. Because we've touched upon this slightly before. Uh, Daniel, you mentioned kind of Metaverse brands and Mel. In fact, a couple of you mentioned kind of the repositioning of like meatless meat, for instance, as an example of a rapidly growing sector. But which verticals, which areas do you think stand the greatest greatest chance for a new uh, disruptor brand to really emerge in over the next couple of years? Are we looking at the kind of the luxury market in 
pushing into NFTs? Are we looking at those kind of fast moving consumer goods? Are we looking at, at the kind of the e-commerce space where we're seeing so many individuals really launch themselves and their own products as a brand in and of themselves? Where do we think that the next big challenger brand is going to emerge from? Um, I personally think it's always going to be software and tech. Um, and it goes back to kind of being able to create those digital experiences online, especially in terms of the advancements in tech. Um, one of the one of my key SEO USPs is the fact that we kind of utilize machine learning, and that has advanced so quickly and is ever evolving. Um, I saw I saw something the other day where um, I think it was created by a Google uh, team where you could literally dictate to a machine how to create like coding for a website and it did it like we're going to see like loads more of this stuff it's going to create so many more like opportunities and digital experiences i think that's kind of always the one that's going to going to going to be disruptive and also like the sector that's always going to win yeah, fair enough. I mean, that that terrified me, the ease of uh, just web, web development there. I know a lot of my friends are going to be absolutely terrified now. Um, <laughs> and Amanda, then, from Motivation's point of view, where are you seeing some of those kind of big challenger brands potentially emerging from? Uh, potentially. I mean, I think definitely um, there could be uh, fashion. Mm. And I think, you know, Uniqlo and its sustainability and like conquering that kind of fast fast fashion versus sustainability. I think if anyone gets that um, sussed, but I think um, FinTech as well, you know, the kind of rapid rise of the kind of buy now or pay later kind of brand Klarna, you know, it's a good example of how quickly you can set up and gain, you know, momentum as a FinTech, you know, and you know, how interesting this has become to the legacy banks and, and big tech firms that are also trying to launch new brands you know, that they have the ability to scale up really quickly. And, you know, dare I say crypto, I'm not going to profess to be a, <laughs> you know, an expert in it. And if I'm honest, it kind of terrifies me. But, you know, this sector is capable of, you know, probably birthing a new unicorn. Who knows what's going to come out? <laughs> well, that's a great phrase. That's a great image as well, birthing a new unicorn. And I, I think one of the things you touched upon there is this idea that, you can tell where a rapidly growing brand is emerging or a rapidly growing sector even because so many of the kind of legacy brands in there just swoop in to acquire them all. Um, but Mel, you, you were the one who kind of flagged up this this change in how people think about meat and kind of sustainability around kind of food and drink. Where else do you think that we're going to see some rapidly growing brands emerge from? Uh, I think one thing I find really interesting is the growth in rentals. And by that, I mean, like clothes rentals, like Runway, which I think has only been going for about three or four years and is just mental in the States. Um, and I believe they're coming over here. Um, and there was some, Dragon's Den had someone on who was doing a similar thing for kids' clothes markets. And one of the dragons were fighting to invest in that. I, I think the way that people are moving towards sustainability, the way people are getting fed up of stuff, yeah. Um, uh, um, means that renting things, uh, I think there'll be an explosion in that, and it, it could be renting clothes, furniture, um, cars uh, on all kinds of different time shifts of you know hours, weeks, days, whatever. Um, so who knows where that's going to go? But I think that's probably a really exciting sector that could could really explode. Absolutely. And Marcus, you mentioned water, for instance, but you know, even beyond that, we've got kind of the rise of gig economy brands. There are kind of the, the crowdfunding sites that we've seen kind of rapidly emerge and become dominant in their own sectors. So where else do you think that we're going to see a lot of experimentation, a lot of those, you know, 10 years down the line, who are we going to look at as an incumbent brand who hasn't even emerged yet? 
Yeah, it'd be interesting. I think I think one old and one new, right? So the, the new for me would be emerging sectors of um, like electric mobility brands. So I think, you know, don't get me started on energy infrastructure <laughs> for electric vehicles. I've just... I'm a man who's entered a hybrid engine hell, and it's you know, <laughs> one point is the providers, the apps, the customer service, and everything that sits around that in the digital age is shameful. I mean, mm. honestly, it's 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 uh, it's absolutely it's absolutely dreadful. It's setting out this journey towards the future future of automotive. So I'm sure people are going to come in and do that right, and actually maybe take you know take over from um, the re- basically just a relabeling of people like Shell and BP who are coming mm. in and giving us dreadful things. It's blown my mind how shocking some of that is. I think you're, you know, you asked about luxury and things like that. I think like whiskey is a great category that you think about. They're just so stuck in their ways. So there's probably it's probably, it is waiting for new new whiskies to emerge, either legacy brands to emerge back in a completely different way. I can't, I always ask what Netflix do if they were marketing a whiskey brand because they never want you to feel like you're being advertised to. I dare, I dare say it'd have attitude. It'd be arresting and they'd do something quite unexpected with it, and and from that sort of take hold in people's you know loyalty loyalty schemes. And uh, you know that's something I think we're we're lacking really. Yeah, I, see, I can yeah, I, I 100% with, get behind that. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you on whiskey, Marcus. One of our clients is called Kibokan, and they're doing unusual things where instead of it being aged in barrels, typically it's sherry, they're doing it with like Japanese sake and things like that. Yeah. So I think there's so much innovation in that sector. I'll plug I'll plug a client, why not? And so I haven't got a book to plug, so I might as well plug <laughs> We work with uh, William Grant. So they've got a whiskey called Elsa Bay, which uses blockchain and the distillery process. But if you look at the branding, you know, it, it set itself very much up as cryptocurrency, future mm. tech brand. And that's how that's how they're marketing themselves. And it really does set out again, setting out those completely new stories to reach new audiences in who are looking for something a little bit more interesting from a whiskey story. So it's really some interesting things happening in the space already. Oh yeah, absolutely. And we just saw Glenfiddich kind of invest in their own kind of NFTs tied to bottles, which are yeah. you know being held in Singapore. It's a really, really interesting strategy. But yeah. you know, this has been a whistle-stop tour through kind of rapidly growing brands who we think are going to be the emerging sectors for the future. So thank you so much for taking part in this discussion. I know that our audience is really going to have appreciated it. So if they want to bend your ear on anything we've mentioned today or even learn more about your organizations, where is the best place for them to reach out to you? Daniel, do you want to go first? Uh, yeah, so with agency, uh, I work for Impression. It, we're quite good at our jobs. So if you just type <laughs> in marketing agency on Google, we usually appear in the top. Um, but yeah, and also I'm quite active on LinkedIn if you want any kind of SEO innovation tips as well. Nice. I like that, putting your money where your mouth is. And Marcus, where can people reach out to find you? Come and find me, first of all, LinkedIn. So it's Marcus Foley. You'll find me at LinkedIn. And I, I do answer. I love uh, people reaching out. Come and argue. Come and have a <laughs> discussion with me. Happy, happily chat about my obsession with content and why I'm called, why I've been called Willy Wonka in the past, which I thought was a bit of an insult, <laughs> to be quite honest. Um, and then my company's called thisistommy.com. So go, go and have a look on there as well. Perfect. Thank you. And Amanda? Yeah, um, again, LinkedIn, find me at LinkedIn, Amanda Glasgow, Appnovation, happy to answer any questions, engage in debates and, <laughs> and so forth. <laughs> nice, fantastic. We've got an argumentative panel then, that's what I'm learning. Finally, Mel? Uh, yeah, LinkedIn, Mel Henson, it'd be great to link with anyone who gets in touch. And uh, the website is uh, optimizeon.co.uk. 
Perfect. Well, Mel, Amanda, Daniel, Marcus, thank you so much for taking part. And thank you to the audience for listening to this, a look at our rapidly growing brands. If you do want to have any more content around this or consume part of our deep dive, you can go to thedrum.com. We are doing an entire Building Brilliant Brands deep dive over the course of the week, and there's plenty of content on there to check out. But until next time, thank you so much for listening and goodbye.